Open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 4. It's been a few weeks since we've uh, been in Ephesians, but um, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 32 today. We're going to finish chapter 4. If you have one of our Bibles, it's, it's on page 1038. Ephesians 4 verse 1 is the beginning of the transition point, right? From, from the first half, the first three chapters of, of uh, the, the uh, here's who we are, here's what God has given us, here's, here's every blessing that we've been given in Christ, this is your identity, to now uh, live out that identity in Christ. So we go from, from uh, the, the construct of the church to the conduct of the church. We've talked about that. Ephesians 4.1 says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you, sounds like Romans, right? Urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. So, so far in chapter 4, we've seen that to walk worthy in the calling that we've received is to live in a way that reflects salvation and, and not to live in a manner that attempts to earn that salvation. And one of the ways that the church reflects that salvation is to live in unity with one another as we use our diverse gifts that we've been given by the Spirit to build up the body of Christ in love and to grow spiritually mature together. This is our goal, right? We're not individual Christians that, that go and live our lives alone with Jesus. We live together using the gifts that God's given us for one another to reflect the new man that he's created, bringing unity between hostile people. And we're able to accomplish these things because we've been fundamentally changed from the inside out, right? As Christians, we've been given a new nature in Christ. You're going to hear that phrase multiple times this, this morning, and, and we need to latch onto that. I've been given a new nature in Christ as a believer and in our passage today, Paul's going to make it clear, a, a, a clear distinction between what we used to be and what we now are. And then he's going to give us some specific examples of how we ought to live in light of who we are. And now, if you're like me and you've ever struggled with guilt over the sin that remains in your life, like you know what Jesus has done, when you hear the gospel, it, you're not dead to it, it wells up in your heart, and yet you look at the sin that remains in your life and you grieve over it, you're frustrated by it, but you feel sometimes like you're a slave to it. If you've ever felt compelled to obedience as compensation for your sin rather than freedom from it, there's hope this morning in this passage, okay? So I want to read it, Ephesians 4, 17 through 32, and pray, and then we'll dig in. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, and because of the hardness of their hearts. They become callous, they became callous, and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity, with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self, that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and, and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak truth to each one to his neighbor because we are members of one another. 
be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy, God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving as one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true and good, that it's loving toward your children, and that it shows us not only a way to live in this life, but uh, ultimately the life eternal that we've been given in Christ. So would you help us this morning to see the heart of our Heavenly Father given, uh, shown to us through your Son, empowered in us by your Spirit, and may we be an encouragement to one another as your church as we hear and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you've heard me say it. I don't even think it's necessarily mine. Um, it's been said multiple ways, but what you believe is how you behave, right? What you believe is how you behave. Your thinking drives your doing. The problem for us as Christians, though, is that sometimes our thinking and our doing look unchristian, right? Sometimes we believe things and we do things that are contrary to Christ and the gospel. Perhaps that's been exposed more in the last year than maybe we're willing to admit. And that happens because we lose sight of a major aspect in the gospel. We have been given a whole new nature in Christ. We either fail to remember that or we fail to believe it. One way or the other, it slips our mind and affects our behavior. But that nature that we've been given, that, that transforms the way we think and act. We are to believe and to behave according to what we've become, right? The Gospel Transformation Study Bible puts it this way. It says, the moral imperative for the Christian is to be who you now are. We are new creations in Christ, so let us turn away from the old ways of the world and live like new people of the Spirit. Amen, right? So here's, as we go through the passage this morning, this is, this is the main idea that Paul's getting at and, our, and our, our takeaway for the message this morning. We must live as new creations in Christ because we are new creations in Christ. Be who you now are, right? And so we reject our old identity, we embrace our new identity, and we practice holiness together. We reject our new identity. Look at verses 17 through 19. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and they gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Paul starts off verse 17 by saying, Therefore, whenever we see therefore, we say, what's the therefore, therefore, right? 
Now, he's continuing to build off of everything that he's already stated in this letter. All that he's, uh, the, the, the new identity that he's described in the first three chapters and, and everything he's, he's given to them up to this point in chapter four, uh, in light of all that Christ has done in you and for you, Paul says, I say this and I testify in the Lord. Now, that word testify, he's not just giving a testimony. He's not just witnessing the, the connotation here is of urging someone or insisting on something as a matter of great importance. So we think of like Romans 12, 1 and 2 that I read for the prayer time. In view of God's mercies, I urge you, right? This is what Paul's saying. Like, listen, in light of everything that I've just explained, this is super important. And you need to do this. In chapter 2, Oh, sorry, what is it? What is it? the important thing, right? He says, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. So in other words, in light of the holiness that you now have in Christ, and even that, right, we balk at that, don't we? We think about our sin and we go, am I? Am I holy? We'll get to that. In light of the holiness you now have in Christ, you should stop living in unholy ways. It, it's spiritual logic here. This is, this is what Paul is saying. Before their conversion to Christ, Paul's readers were Gentiles, who, who, unbelieving Gentiles, who lived immoral and ungodly lives. In chapter 2, Paul tells us that they previously lived, what, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, and according to their own fleshly desires, carrying those out. They were subject to the world, the flesh, and the devil all the enemies of the soul. And their way of thinking was futile. It was meaningless. It was empty. And the futility of their thoughts led to actions that were ultimately devoid of purpose and benefit and satisfaction. And now here in verse 18, Paul says that they're darkened in their understanding. Again, we go back to Romans because he elaborates on this idea in chapter 1 of Romans. It says, For God's wrath was revealed from heaven, against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he's made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, futile, and their senseless hearts were darkened. It's not that they want to see clearly, but they can't. It's that they chose darkness over light. Why? Paul gives the answer in Ephesians 4.18. He says, because the ignorance that's in them and because of the hardness of their hearts, this is how they're behaving. Their sinful desires and actions have left them ignorant of the forgiveness and the grace that they need. And that ignorance isn't a lack of knowledge. God has made it perfectly clear. It's a denial of the knowledge of salvation. They've become ignorant of the truth because they've suppressed it in their unrighteousness and have hardened their hearts toward it. They're stubbornly unwilling to believe or to heed what's been plainly revealed to them. 
And as a result, they became callous and they gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. It's a deadly cycle, right? Here it is. Sin darkens the mind and it hardens the heart. And that leads to a calloused refusal to understand and believe the truth and a sinful self-abandonment and complete lack of moral restraint that leads to regular practice the regular practice of every kind of impurity with a, an insatiable greediness. That's what that desire means for more and more of it. That then in turn darkens the mind and hardens the heart and so on and so forth. And the end result is that those unbelieving Gentiles who've given themselves over to this cycle are excluded from the life of God. This is what Paul says. Paul summarizes this in chapter 2 when he tells his readers, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what it means to be excluded from the life of God. Now, this is a terribly disheartening picture, is it not? The description that Paul gives here in chapter 4, it it almost seems like animalistic behavior, barbaric behavior, right? Like he's describing wild beasts or cavemen, Neanderthals or something like that, not not rational human beings. And we we, we want to, to... Sometimes uh, uh, downplay that because we can look out at rational human beings that are unbelievers and say they're not so bad, right? But the reality is that even the most intellectual people on the planet are depraved if they reject Christ. There are brilliant minds in our world now and throughout the course of history, even in Paul's day, that have contributed in major ways to society. In, in majorly beneficial ways. And yet many of those same minds have remained darkened in their understanding of their own contribution to their exclusion from the life of God through their hardened and sinful hearts. It's a tragedy to have your thinking be fruitful towards society, but futile toward the Lord. It's a tragedy because that way of thinking is devoid of true life. Ig- intellectual or ignoramus, it doesn't matter. Death is the reality for all who remain callous to Christ and the gospel. And no one is in this deadly cycle of sin can get themselves out of it because as Paul makes it clear here, they don't want to get themselves out of it. But in the first half of his letter, he made it abundantly clear to his readers that Christ has rescued them out of it, right? And Christ has taught them a new way. What is that new way to embrace our new identity? Look at verse 20. But that's not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Paul tells his readers, listen, you didn't come to know Christ by walking as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. No one comes to God on their own like that. You came to know Christ when God, who is rich in mercy, and because of his great love that he had for you, made you alive with Christ even though you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Chapter 2, 1 through 10. Paul isn't telling his readers to take off the old self and put on the new self here. It sounds like that at first. 
He's helping them see that they've already done that because that's what Christ has done and that's what Christ taught them to do. They were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their, of their salvation, and they believed, as Paul says back in chapter 1. Why is it the word of truth? Because it's the gospel of Jesus Christ who is truth and in whom all truth resides. As the truth is in Jesus, he says. And the truth is that in Christ, these Gentile believers are already new creations. They're already new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17, again Paul. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see the new has come. The past tense there is super important. This is what it is to be saved. It's to be converted by Christ. It's a conversion from the old to the new, from death to life, from rebellion to repentance, from sin to salvation. This conversion is done by God through his grace and power, and it's reflected by us through our new belief and our new behavior. The language Paul uses here in Ephesians 4 gives this imagery of of taking off old, tattered clothes and being clothed, putting on new garments that are brand new, pristine, pure. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul says that the believers have been clothed with Christ. He tells his Ephesian readers, your old self is your former way of life that I just described when I said the Gentiles. That old self, is, it's corrupted by deceitful desires. That word corrupted gives this idea of being deteriorated from the inside out. Scripture gives testimony to this. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Jesus said in Mark 7, you might remember this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. Paul tells his readers here that at their conversion, Christ taught them not only to take off their former way of life, but to also be renewed in the spirit of their minds. In other words, Christ transformed their entire inner being so that their belief and their behavior would change to reflect the new creation that he's made them to be. And they've been recreated according to God's likeness. Doesn't that language sound familiar? It takes us back to Genesis, right? And the original creation account where God made man and woman in his image. The Hebrew word for, for man is Adam, Adam. Adam was created in God's likeness, in, in, in righteousness, and in purity of the truth. But Adam corrupted himself when he sinned with Eve in the garden. And as a result, all of mankind, all of Adam, is born in the likeness of Adam with a sinful nature. This is why we must be transformed and given a new nature. And again, Paul reminds his readers here, that's exactly what you've been given. The Greek word that he uses for self, old self, new self, in verse 22 and 24, can also be translated as man or human. 
Put on the new man. Take off the old man. The old self he's referring to here is the sinful man, Adam. And the new self is Christ, who is the new and truer Adam. The one who is, who is righteousness and pure and true. In putting off the old self, we shed our sinful way of life in Adam. And in putting on the new self, we embrace our new way of life in Christ. This happens when God recreates us, converts us in Christ through salvation. So which self do you have on this morning? If you deny your need for Christ's rescue and and forgiveness, we need to understand, you need to understand that that denial comes from a corrupted heart that's fixated on deceitful desires. The darkened mind needs to be enlightened. That's what the gospel is for. So my prayer is that you hear the gospel this morning and that God illumines your mind and heart to see the truth, not to flee from it, but to run to him and no longer be enslaved by the futility of your thoughts, but to turn to Christ and believe and to find New life in the one who died and rose again to set sinners free from death and corruption and sin. Now, if you're a believer, but you still struggle with sin, everyone, right? You have been given a new nature. You are not your old self. Christ has clothed you with himself. You've been recreated in Christ according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. The sin that remains in you, listen, is no longer a result of a corrupted heart. It can't be. Why? Because God has given you a brand new heart. Never to be corrupted again by sin. This doesn't make sense in our minds right now. But this is the reality. That sin that remains in you is the result of a mind that is forgetful of God's heart for you and of the reality of who he's made you to be in Christ. But listen, take heart because you're not alone in that struggle. Every single one of us in here has things that we regret post-conversion. the struggle of every believer because we all have remaining sin that God graciously and patiently reveals to us and he lovingly helps us put it to death because why? We've died to it already and we've been raised with Christ. If you haven't picked up a copy of Gentle and Lowly, let this maybe entice you. Here's a quote from it. The Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence of who he is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our minds Dark thoughts of God. Darkened in our understanding, right? Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. And this is key right here. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today 
is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. That's page 151 and 152 if you have the book. The more our minds are consumed with the reality of God's gracious and merciful heart for us, the more our new hearts that he has given to us will grow in affection toward him and hatred toward the sin that remains in us. The more we believe that the old self has been truly taken off, the more we will shed the sins that characterized it. And that's what Paul gets at in the next set of verses when he talks about practicing holiness together. He lists five old self behaviors for us to stop doing, five new self behaviors to start doing. And then he gives a reason for each one of them. Look at verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Paul says to stop lying and to start speaking the truth. He quotes from Zechariah 8.16 here, where God instructs the righteous remnant of his people to speak truth to one another as he promises to restore Jerusalem to them. Now, Paul knows his readers are part of God's new creation community. And in the first half of chapter 4, he wrote about the importance of protecting that community against false teaching by speaking the truth in love to one another, right? Already in our passage today, he's told his readers that the truth is in Jesus and that they've put on the new self, created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of what? The truth. Romans 1 tells us that sinful humanity exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Here, Paul tells the new humanity to exchange the lie for the truth. What's the reason? He says, we're members of one another. We're members of one another. Our new self is not just an individual self. It's a corporate self. Both Jewish and Gentile believers are now united together in Christ. He's made one new man from the two. Lies divide Truth unites. As members united together in the body of Christ, we must speak the truth to one another. So the question that we need to ask is, are you speaking the truth to your brothers and sisters in Christ? And are you speaking it in love? Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity Now, Paul isn't necessarily contrasting righteous anger with sinful anger here, okay? There is a difference. There are things that we can be and should be angry about, uh, and and we can do it in a righteous way, but, but let's be honest, we don't do it for very long, right? And this is the point. That's what he's getting at. He, he's quoting Psalm 4.4, which says, Be angry and do not sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. And the verse that follows that in, in that psalm says, uh, or talks about offering sacrifices in righteousness and trusting in the Lord. Paul is well aware, and so are we, right, that, that anger is constantly present in a fallen world. And there are certainly things that we should be angry about as believers when we see injustice. Things like that. But Paul's instruction to his readers is that wherever anger is present, they must not let sin be present with it. And as the psalm says, when the sun goes down, they ought to lie on their bed and reflect in their heart and be still. They ought to entrust themselves 
to the Lord so that they don't entrust themselves to the devil. When we harbor anger, when we let it simmer and just keep rolling, we give the devil an opportunity to exert his evil influence and we become more prone to sin. We need to stop harboring anger and start resting in the Lord when we're angry. Why? So we can resist the devil and submit to Christ. So again, the question, are you harboring anger? Look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. When a thief steals, he uses his hands to take from others and give to himself, right? When he does honest work with his hands, he uses his hands then not for his own good, but for the good of others. Remember that Paul told his readers that they're members of one another. And as members of one another, they must not take from one another, but instead be ready to meet each other's needs. Resting in the Lord instead of harboring anger removes opportunities for the devil. Working hard instead of stealing creates opportunities for the believer. When a need arises in the body, guess what? You have something to share now. Galatians 6.10, therefore as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all especially for those who belong to the household of faith. We need to use our hands for honest work instead of dishonest gain. Why? So that we're ready to share with anyone in need. Do you have something to share when a need arises? That doesn't mean you have to have everything, right? That's why we're members of one another. I can't meet all your needs and you can't meet all mine. It's not, that's not the way it works. But together as the body of Christ, we multiply those opportunities. Look at verse 29. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what's good for building up someone in need, so that, if, so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Paul says our mouths should be filled with grace language, not foul language. Now, he's not just talking about dirty jokes or swear words, right? If that was the case, we'd probably be like, yeah, I'm pretty good there. Foul means evil, unwholesome, harmful, corrupting. In other words, sinful, right? We should not use our mouths to corrode and to corrupt one another, but to build each other up in grace. The Greek word that Paul uses for good here in verse 29 is the same word that he used for honest when he was talking about honest work in verse 28. It's language that's rooted in righteousness and in purity of the truth. You notice he points to someone in need again. He's talking about more opportunities to do good in the body of Christ. We all need more grace, don't we? The, the phrase building up is a language, is language that he used in the first half of, of chapter 4 when he talked about each member doing his or her part to promote the growth of the body by building itself up in what? In love. So we don't just want to use our hands for the good of one another. We want to use our words for the good of one another as well. When foul language comes from our mouths, Paul says we grieve the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal power or mystical force. This, this, that he can be grieved 
is evidence right here that he's a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. He is the very personal presence of God himself dwelling in us. And when we sin, it brings him sorrow. Now, that's hard to hear, isn't it? But it's true. And yet we need to understand that even when the Spirit grieves over our sin, His love for us remains perfectly intact. When, you, when someone you deeply love sins against you, when they wrong you, you're going to be grieved, aren't you? But I'm willing to bet that your love for them won't change. Especially as a believer in Christ. Especially the closer they are to you. How much closer can you get to God than Him dwelling in you? Yes, it brings sorrow to the Spirit. But no, He does not love you any less. But we need to understand why our foul language grieves the Spirit. He's grieved because our foul language divides what he has brought together in unity. You remember the call in, in the beginning of chapter 4 to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? That certainly doesn't happen if we're corroding each other with foul language. Foul language doesn't keep that unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It sows turmoil and disjoints the body of Christ. Paul reminds his readers that they were sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. That, that, that seal is one of both ownership and security. The Father has adopted them as, a, as his own, chapter 1. And he's secured an inheritance for them in eternity. And he will guard them by his power until they receive that inheritance on what? The day of redemption, which is also the day of the Lord. Which is vindication for believers and judgment for sinners. And when were they sealed by the Spirit? Paul tells us. Chapter 1, verse 13. When they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, and they believed. The gospel is grace-filled language from the mouth of God to all who hear and recognize their need. When what comes out of our mouths gives grace to the hearer, we reflect the heart of God in the gospel. That's why it's so important. And listen, in a culture that spews corrosive and spiteful and abusive language through virtually every avenue, don't we as a church need to look very, very different than that? Don't we as a church need to work extra hard to make sure that we're building one another up with our words and not tearing each other down, even when we disagree on things like COVID and politics and social issues and whether or not to show up on 75 below zero or whatever it is right now, right? Don't be your old self. Don't be like the world. That doesn't mean we don't tell the truth, but it does mean we tell the truth in love. It doesn't mean we cheapen grace, but it does mean we extend it. Do the words that come out of your mouth give grace to the hearer or do they grieve the Holy Spirit? Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness, anger and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. 
and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. The word all here is the key. It modifies everything that comes after it. All bitterness, all anger and wrath, all shouting and slander, all malice, all forms of all of these things should be completely removed from you, Paul says. These things are not reflective of the God who saved you and transformed you. Bitterness is resentment that lingers like a bad taste in your mouth. It's the result of harboring anger, which Paul told us not to do, right? It gives the devil an opportunity. Anger and wrath, these two words that he uses here cover the, the, the whole scope of magnitude of, of, of what anger is. From, from passionate, uncontrolled outbursts that, that quickly subside to intense, intense rage and fury that only burns hotter and hotter without being quenched. Shouting and slander are examples of the foul language that corrodes and corrupts. Malice is hostility with the possible desire to do harm. The thief could fall under that one, right? These are old self-behaviors. This is dead man. But Paul's readers have put off the old self, and they've, they've put on the new self, created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. And so they ought to be kind and compassionate to one another and forgive each other just as God has forgiven them in Christ. They need to live as new creations. Why? Because they are new creations in Christ. Now, if we're honest with each other this morning, and, and my prayer is that, that we always are, We'd, we'd all have to admit that in Paul's list of do's and don'ts in this passage, there are times when we do the things he tells us don't do. And there are times when we don't do the things he tells us do. There are days when we look more like our old unsaved selves than we do like new creations according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. And when we read verse 32, it's easy for us to get discouraged when we think about where we're at currently in life because we know that we fall woefully short of the standard that Paul lays out for us to follow here. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. That means perfectly, completely, without failure. But we need to look deeper here. We cannot miss the very heart of God in this verse. Paul's not just telling us to be like God. He's showing us who God is. God forgave us. He forgave us in Christ. Why? Because he is kind. Because he's compassionate toward us. Even when we were darkened in our understanding and, in our, and our hearts were hardened and, and callous toward him, he saved us by his grace through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. God renewed not only our minds, but he transformed our hearts in Christ so that we can think the way he thinks, that we can speak the way he speaks, and that we can love the way he loves and forgive the way he forgives. If we were to try to be kind and compassionate and forgiving on our own strength, we would never be able to do it. 
And quite honestly, we would never truly want to do it. Because our thoughts would be futile and we would only desire more and more things that were impure. We would, we would give ourselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity. We would look for opportunities not to help one another, but to gratify ourselves. We would harbor anger. We would take from others. Corruption would pour out of our mouths. And we'd be intimately acquainted with all forms of bitterness, anger, and wrath. Shouting and slander. Malice. Look at the world around you. Without hope and without God, this is what we are. But that is not how you came to know Jesus Christ. That was our former way of life. That was the old self that was crucified with Christ. And it's now, now it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. The life we now live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. That's Galatians 2. We've been recreated in his likeness to do what pleases God. And so in those areas where the Spirit has exposed the sin that, that has remained, there's no point in denying the truth. That it's there. Don't dress yourself up. You've already been clothed. No good comes from condemning yourself either for those things when Christ has already paid the price for them. There's only need to remember the reality that you now live as a new creation in Christ. What you believe is how you behave. True help is found when you remember God's heart for you and you believe that he hasn't changed and he will never change, but he is changing you. So you should no longer live as the Gentiles do because you no longer are a Gentile. You are a Christian and we, together as Christians, are the church. We are the body of Christ and the church of God. And so let's continue then to put away the remnant beliefs and behaviors of our former way of life because the old self is dead and our new self is fully alive in the eternally unchanging love of our heavenly Father who is kind and compassionate and who's forgiven us once and for all through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's live as new creations in Christ. Why? Because we are new creations in Christ. Amen? Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word this morning. We thank you, God, that, that even though we, we make so much effort to convince ourselves, even so, even still, that we have to earn what we've been freely given, <clears throat> that we have to uh, qualify those things that you are gracious enough that you're patient enough that you're kind and compassionate enough to keep forgiving us to keep pointing us to the truth that we've been made new and that now between the already of our righteousness in Christ and the not yet of the, the, the finished righteousness to come where sin is no longer that you continue to renew our minds and transform our hearts 
so that we believe and behave according to what we've become, new creations in Christ. Lord, we ask for your help. We pray that you would grow our hearts deeper with joy and gratitude and awe of you for what you've done and given us in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.